Very nice. Thank you, Tiffany. <clears throat> well, our passage today is in Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Would you stand as we read together God's holy word and learn from it today? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us to learn from it. Help us to to truly be excited by what we see here and the light of what we have learned so far in this letter from Paul. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul writes in verse 7 that you have been freed from sin. You have been given a living nature, Christ's nature, by which you are to live in obedience to God's word. And the tragedy is that many Christians don't fully grasp that point. But Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, which means as a result of this truth, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now before, as we read in Romans 1 through 3, that's, you, you wanted to do nothing but let sin reign in your mortal body. All you did all the time was suppress the truth of God's existence and, and will and try to replace him with your own idols, But now your captivity, Paul says, and your enslavement has been broken. And yet, is that the reality that you live? Or are you often allowing sin to reign? Paul will go on in the remainder of this chapter to say that you're not a slave anymore. He's saying it over and over again in many different ways. You're not a slave anymore. You must run away from sin as far as possible. And yet... So often you stay a captive by choice, ignoring the life and freedom that has been granted to you through Jesus Christ. Doesn't that seem ridiculous when you think about it? It should. And Paul says that you stand before God's throne in grace, but you keep wallowing in the pig slops. That's really is what he's saying. At least the prodigal son got up and went home, right? And friends, God will not let you wallow there. Once he has put his claim upon your life, you are no longer your own. And having been bought with the great price, you were 
remade in the image of Christ, and part of that image is to possess a submissive and an obedient spirit. Before, when you were lost and captive to sin, you suppressed the truth of God's nature and his law. Your conscience became what the Bible describes as being seared. It became numb to your sinful habits and your behaviors, but then God brought new life. And with that life came an awakened conscience, a healed conscience that was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and to his word. And so Paul says, wake up. Wake up and realize that you died to sin. And verse 11 says, consider yourself dead to sin. Stop acting like the world. Now, some people might argue that as long as we're ignorant of sin, we're okay. Most of you heard the saying, ignorance is bliss, which implies that as long as you aren't aware of something, you don't have to stress over it. Is that how it works with sin? Especially because once you start seeing problems that you have to fix, once you start realizing that things are a sin, well, that requires some significant sacrifice and personal change, right? So why not stay in ignorant bliss? But it doesn't work that way. You may try to convince yourself that if you don't particularly take the time to think through the consequences of a particular action, then you won't be held responsible for the outcome and that you can keep going through life with Hands over your eyes and plugs in your ears, moving along in seeming ignorance. But Paul asks an important question. Are we to continue in sin? Are we to continue in sin? And the answer is no. Let not sin. Do not let sin reign in your body to make you obey its passions. If you allow sin to master you, you will face the consequences of God's discipline. So what do we do? Well, God has given us some important things. He's given us two in particular that I want to go over this morning, self-examination and confession. So the first one is found in James 5.16. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And 1 John 2.1 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some of you might say, but did we not learn in the past two weeks that God has declared us not guilty? That he's removed from himself the remembrance of our sins. Well, if that's true, then then why should we confess? Aren't we forgiven? And the answer is that while God has perfected us forever, once in the offering, yeah, once for all, in Christ's offering of himself on the cross, he is still in the process of making us holy. And justification, as often is talked about here at CVP, justification and other churches is different than sanctification. In justification, you were, you were acquitted, you were declared once for all by God innocent of the charges because the payment was made in full by Christ on the cross. And so in the language of the book of Hebrews, for example, it says Christ's sacrifice perfected forever those whom God has declared not guilty. That's justification. That was the subject of the first chapters of Romans. But in sanctification, what we're going to see in these chapters is that God spends your lifetime refining you to become conformed to the image of his son. 
You may possess Christ's nature, but you are not yet his perfect image. And so God gives you confession because when you practice confession well, two things happen. First, it liberates you from the guilt that you experience in grieving God. And second, true confession involves a resolve to stop sinning, to repent. The good question for you is how are you doing at confessing sin? Is it hard for you to confess? Now the reality is that every believer sins before and after salvation. The difference in those two time periods is that before salvation, as a non-Christian, you are described in the early chapters of Romans as one whose desire was to run from God. Your only desire was that. Wickedness all the time. There was no good in you. When you were saved by the Lord, however, you were freed from that enslaving grasp of sin so that you now have the ability to obey God. You have two natures now that are fighting for your attention. The flesh, which is always corrupt, and the spirit, which is always pure. You can submit to either nature. And Paul describes this submission to the flesh as letting sin reign in your body. In another place, he calls it sowing to the flesh. Submitting to the spirit, on the other hand, is called walking in the spirit. And unfortunately, just like Paul, too often you sow to the flesh. You do what you know you shouldn't do. Your old habits, your old ways still affect you and tempt you to act like you were before you were saved. And of course, every sin grieves the Lord and to some degree affects your relationship with him. And it is for that reason that he instructs you, confess your sins. He says you live in a reality of this constant struggle and you need to acknowledge it by confessing your sins to the Lord, confessing your sins to one another, so that his fatherly discipline of you can end, so that your life will return to holiness in all of its parts, and the enemy will not have the opportunity to keep thwarting God's plan in your life. And as he writes further down in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And then he says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of house, ready for every good work. That describes where we want to be. That's what we want to to do. And with all of that in mind, I want to give you some practical help today with regard to self-examination, regard to confession, so that you can learn to be a slave to righteousness, a vessel for honorable use. And so step one is to prayerfully ask God, reveal my innermost thoughts and my motives. Because if left to myself, I will gloss over my habits and behaviors. I'll make excuses. I'll defend what I've done. And my heart is deceptive. I know I will not see what I should. And I need the objective help of God and of his word. It's as David once confessed in Psalm 19, 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. I don't want to be in that position where I have these hidden motives, where I've deceived myself. In another psalm, David writes, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. And so the prayer that you have in this first step is, Lord, you know my thoughts, you know my motives, you know what I've done to to deceive myself. Help me. Keep me back from presumptuous sin. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. If you want to know the truth, ask for it. You will one day be held account for your motives. And so learn to ask David, Jeremiah. God would reveal where you've fallen short of his holy standards. Have you prayed a prayer like this lately? For example, pray, Lord, you know my heart, but I know my tendency for excuse making. And I often don't think that there is anything wrong with the way that I am looking at something or what my motives are. You know the truth. Search me, show me what I'm missing. And then step two after praying that is to read God's word and examine yourself by what it says because God will typically only reveal things when you are seeking him and seeking his kingdom. In Galatians 6, 4, Paul writes, but let each one examine his own work. In a similar passage in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in in the faith. Test yourselves. But you know what? That's an active process. It's not a passive process. You actually have to read God's word. You have to be seeking him in prayer. You have to desire wisdom. You can't be asking with doubting. And it takes time to reflect on your words and your deeds and measure them by the word of God. And the principle here is that out of the heart springs forth our words and our actions. And if you think your heart is just fine, but you're struggling with patience, you think your heart is just fine, but your words tend to have that edge of harshness and irritability, If you think your heart's just fine, but you are struggling with self-control, what is the fruit of the tree of your life giving forth as evidence? That's not the fruit you want to see in a life that is fleeing from sin and not letting sin reign in your mortal body. Now, it may be difficult to thoroughly examine yourself without taking time to withdraw to a quiet spot and that's free of distraction. I I think that of all the world's nations, this, this nation, America, suffers the most from this tyranny of the urgent and our efforts to stay busy and industrious and even all the promises of efficiency and so on have not produced what we're after, which is more rest time, but usually exactly the opposite. We tend to be rich in goods and yet poor in relationships, right? And so we are enveloped in this continuous, continuous struggle and attempt to accomplish and to achieve more and more things, to participate in more and more events in less and less time. And it's usually in the opposition of the needs of our families and our friends. 
Busyness will keep us consumed by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And those are the very things that will prevent you from examining well your heart. So follow Jesus' example in that. Even though he was surrounded by demanding crowds, what did he do? He regularly withdrew from crowds and activities. He instructs his disciples to do that as well. When they would return from a busy time of ministry, he didn't say, wow, you guys are young, full of energy. Go out. Go back out while you still have the opportunity. Go and evangelize more. What he said was instead, in Mark 6.31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Debrief. Meditate upon what, what's been taught, what you've learned. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. You hear that? See that word? That phrase? And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And that sounds like us, I think, when I read that section in Mark 6. Have no leisure even to eat. As I look back over the past two months, my family has not had a lot of nights in which we all ate a meal and shared a quiet evening together, at least not as as many as I would like. Between church events and visiting one place or another or hosting an individual or family or even some of us being out of town, like right now with Wendy being out of town up in Idaho, we have had nearly every night occupied I looked at my calendar in April the other day. I was sitting down with a couple, and there was one blank day. It looked like it, it was so noticeable on the calendar. It was like black hole in April. Got to fill it, right? <laughs> I know many of you and your families are the same. And what happens? For my family, what tends to happen sometimes is we can become a little more irritable and less self-controlled. We typically, here's the point, we typically don't improve when we get busier. And that's probably true of you. You'll probably find that as you increase the external commitments that the relationships in your home simultaneously tend to diminish, your ability to focus on the things that are required in self-examination goes away. You know, I have my doubts that one day when we arrive before the Lord that he will say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. What a busy life you've had. You were too busy even to eat together. That was, that was really good. So take time to get away to a quiet place of prayer, careful self-examination. Make it early. Some, you know, at least Jesus' example is early in the morning. Maybe some of you are going, no. I mean, it doesn't have to be early in the morning, but, but make it a consistency, right? Make it a consistent time. You might even pray through passages like Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. And by reading that passage, we're directed. In fact, I would encourage you, pray the Scriptures, So here's what it sounds like, you know, as you read through Galatians 5, for example. Lord, whom have I hurt? Did I purposefully mislead someone? Did I gossip yesterday? You know, in other words, don't don't just read about these, the fruit, bad and good fruit, as these abstract concepts, self-control, kindness, and so on. Lord, was I kind today? Or did I struggle in this area? 
Bring to my mind all of my sins. Do I have envy or hatred in my heart? Have I been unrighteously angry? Do I have selfish ambition? Am I seeking my own ways? And once you prepare yourself to receive the Lord's admonition, once you've been reading his word, you've been praying for him to reveal your innermost thoughts and motives, and you actually are focusing on the things that he wants you to clothe yourself with, right? This good fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember, and this is step three, that God's standards are perfection. They are 100% purity. At the end of chapter 5 in Romans, Paul says that the law of God, because it is holy, perfectly holy, it makes our sin exceedingly sinful. And we have to realize that if, if we're serious about those first two steps, particularly about self-examination, then we're going to realize that we're not just sinful, but that we're actually exceedingly sinful, But instead of being broken over that, it's as if we stop looking up and we cover our eyes to shield them from the glare of God's holiness and then start looking horizontally and excusing our sins by comparing it to other people. I think to myself, as long as I'm better than my neighbor, then I'm fine. I can't match God's perfect purity, but I'm mostly pure and God will be satisfied with that. But you can't fall into that. Don't set a lower standard. God says that the purity of the heart is to will one thing and one thing only. So don't be satisfied if I'm being kind 80% of the time. Right? question is being ruthless about where I'm struggling in these areas to see the good fruit and letting sin reign in my body. What in my mind? In my heart? What's causing the 20%? Where's that irritability coming from? Where's that lack of self-control coming from? And the likelihood is that it's related to this. The purity of the heart is to will one thing and one thing only. God's will and not your own. You can't live with two days with your mind focused on Christ, five days without. You have to be diligent Step four, take responsibility for what you have done by refusing to make excuses. See, what often starts as confession ends up as an excuse, right? I'm sorry for yelling at you. I was having a bad day. As one author writes, to confess means to own up to the fact that your behavior was not just the result of bad parenting, poor genes, Jealous siblings or a bad work day. It's true that all of those external factors may have been involved in some of your decision making and some of your thought processes, but confession means saying that somewhere in the mix was ultimately a wrong choice, a wrong motive, a wrong heart, and that choice, that motive, that word, that action, whatever it is, doesn't need to be excused explained or even understood, it simply needs to be forgiven, confessed and forgiven. One of the worst things that, about sin is that it carries a certain moral, what I'd say is a moral nearsightedness. It keeps our focus and attention on ourselves and the things that we want. We can see very clearly with 
with long distance all the sins of others, but we shut our eyes and ears to our own behaviors and thoughts. In fact, because in our old natures we develop these habitual patterns of behavior, we can easily step back into these patterns without even thinking. We can hate them in other people. Isn't that strange? You can hate them in other people and yet totally be ignorant of them in yourself, or at least not willing to see it. So in this step we say, Lord, help me to see myself through your eyes and through other people's eyes. Help me to see through the eyes of the person that I offended. Whatever it is that I've said or done, help me to separate myself from my desire to excuse myself and defend myself. In James 4, 8, we read, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And I used to consider this passage as probably one of the most depressing statements of the New Testament. And here we've had all of the great stories of the Gospels and the good news, right? And, and we've got these powerful doxology statements, doxologic statements in the New Testament letters. And then we have this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But there's actually a great gift in this particular passage. And this is what it is. Being broken over sin is as useful to the soul as pain is to the body. When God shows us how sin affects him, we should be broken with a godly sorrow. That's when we're ready for his use. But let me say this, and we, we do need to remind ourselves regularly about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he distinguishes between what? A worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is that disappointment that we feel at not living up to our standards or to realizing our expectations. That's a worldly sorrow. But a godly sorrow is a disappointment at not living up to God's standards and expectations. It's the proper emotional response to our sin. And it's the only sorrow that leads us to seek God's mercy. So self-examination... Confession, we need to see God's law and standards for what they are. We need to refuse to allow sin to reign over us. We need to place ourselves before God. We need to ask him for his penetrating insight. We need to look at his word. We need to be broken over and sorrowful for our sin, those things which have offended and caused others pain. We must not compare ourselves to others, but we must remember the perfect standards of God and constantly rely on his Holy Spirit. And then step five is resolve to do better in the future. The strength of our resolve helps us to know whether we're actually repenting or just attempting damage control. You spouses can examine your hearts in those areas and ask, okay, last argument I had, how much was my confession about damage control, getting out of conflict, preserving the peace, and how much of it was an actual intentionality to say, let's not do this again. What do I need to do in my life, in my heart, my decisions, that make it so that we don't get back into this pattern again? That's the difference between damage control and repentance. 
At the end of chapter 6, verse 22, we read, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is not only possible, friends, but entirely within your inheritance as adopted sons and daughters in the kingdom to actually walk in a way that is satisfying, comforting, and healing along with your creator. Paul speaks of the fruit we get that leads to sanctification. But it isn't just a fruit that we are to set on the table and admire like a bowl of glossy red apples. Instead, and this is the final step, we are to actively clothe ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit. So in God's work in your life, he's actually gifting you with fruit. Right? He's working you to will, to do his good pleasure. He's giving you this fruit that leads to life. It's a free gift of God. And you are to take that and not just admire it. You are to clothe yourself with it. If you think about what you did this morning as you got dressed and ready for church. It's a process. It requires initiative. It requires action on your part. In Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones. That's the motivation, right? God has been gracious to us. Everything we've seen so far in Romans motivates us out of gratitude to want to put on, to take that action in, in intentionality, purposefulness, to put on these things. Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against you, forgiving as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, love, which binds it all together in perfect harmony. There are so many positive traits that you find in Scripture. If you want to be like Christ... In his character, you have to commit yourself to not only crucifying the old nature, but replacing it with the new. You may remember times in the past, I've always often said as parents, you don't just take away the bad, you replace it with the good, right? That's such an important principle of parenting. Well, it's the same thing with the Christian life. You don't just crucify the flesh. You put on the spirit. It's not enough to stop cheating on the income tax returns. You also have to learn to share with those that are in need. Right? It's not enough to avoid being bitter against those who've wronged us You actually need to pray for them and forgive them when they ask for forgiveness. It's not enough to pray that God will enable us to deal with a volatile, harsh tongue and temper. We must ask him to help put on compassion and grace and humility. That's the hard part, friends. I I think that's probably one of the most demanding things about the Christian life because there are a lot of people going, oh, I just need to stop. 
stop saying what I think is in my heart, <laughs> you know, as if that's enough, right? I, I, I didn't say what I really thought that time. No, you need to, you need to address the thoughts, right? We've, you got to go to the foundation of it. It's not enough that you didn't say what was really on your mind. In summary, what Paul is talking about in this chapter is killing sin, and it's such an important part of this process of, of self-examination and confession that we really need to ask, is this actually a regular part of my life? I want my children, for example, to know that I'm quick to confess sin as a father. I want them to see that modeled in me. I want you to see that modeled in me. That if, if I am sinning and offending you, I want you to see me growing in humility, to grow in mercy, to grow in grace. Right? I don't want you to see me beginning to calcify and get more irritable and more set in my ways and all of the things that we sometimes associate with older age. Our oldest people in this church should be the most resplendent, glorious, shining saints. And that's what we should be desiring in our own lives. Every year, brighter, more glorious, shining saints. One final thing to remember about this fight is that the victory is assured. You can be confident that as you go through this process, and it's painful, but as you go through the process, Jesus has said, the victory is done. Think about when he talked to Peter and said, Simon, Satan has, has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. It's such a great verse. Though Peter would fail miserably, Jesus' prayers preserve him from utter ruin. He is brought to repentance. He's restored to the joy and boldness at Pentecost. And we're told in Scripture that Jesus is even now interceding on our behalf. The victory is assured. He is your high priest forever. You're not alone. He will not desert you. He will always be with you into the end of the age. He will complete to perfection the work that he began in you. He's called you to be a partner in this work. And he confirms his covenant to those who are sent children by an immutable oath. That's why Paul can say a little bit later in chapter 8 that we will, what? Overwhelmingly conquer. Paul's so confident that you're going to respond positively to what we've just been going through today in chapter 6 and then what we'll see next week in chapter 7. He's so confident that he is willing to say, and friends, with all of this that we are armed with, we will overwhelmingly conquer. How could we not? How could we not? 
Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. You just have to remember who you serve. What he saved you from, what he's made you to be, and what he offers you, and what he's doing right now to make it certain. And so I end with a charge, and it comes from 1 Kings chapter 2. David speaking to his son Solomon. He says, I go the way of all the earth, but be strong and prove yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies. As it is written, the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And so I want to exhort all of you Be men. Be women. A true man, a true woman, sons and daughters of God, keep the charge and remember what we've talked about today. God's given you everything that you need to walk. He's given you every motive that he needs to encourage you, to exhort you, to keep being diligent Do not walk in the flesh. Do not sow to the flesh, but walk in the spirit. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, but realize that the power is of God. Praise be to God who gives us everything we need in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercies. I thank you for the completeness of what you've given us in Christ. Thank you for the call to be holy. To not just address those things that are negative in us, but Lord, to put on the good fruit of the Holy Spirit. And for all of us who are struggling with tempers and self-control and harshness and impatience and irritability and bitterness, all the things that Make us ineffective, I pray, that you would not only help us to cease in those ways, but to be asking, where do I need to be kind? Where do I need to be humble? Where do I need to be gracious and compassionate? Father, help us to be ruthless. Reveal to us our hearts. Help us to stop making excuses. And then, Lord, help us to walk in the newness of life. It's in Jesus' I pray. Name I pray. Amen.